Hey, everyone out there, and thanks again for joining us here at ASAP Nowcast, the official podcast for ASAP Now. I'm Amy Ho again, ER doctor and ASAP Now assistant editor, and also host of this podcast. So this month, we are coming back from a great ASAP Scientific Assembly in San Francisco. Dr. Dark, myself, Dr. Marco, and the rest of the ASAP Now team are all there. But for those of you that missed it, never fear. There is still ASAP Unconventional Virtual coming up early next month in November. So be sure to check that out. But of course, you can also rewind to our last podcast episode of ASAP Now for September to check out Dr. Dark's feature with the keynote speakers, the Glockenfleckens. So for this month's episode of the podcast, though, I wanted to highlight, I thought, a really important awareness, and that is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So I think it's really important because we all know that we see these patients in the emergency department. Now, if you're like me, a lot of times my involvement with those patients is sometimes as easy as a MSE and a call to sane nurses. I am extremely lucky to work at facilities that have sexual assault nurse examiners, um, but I know that that's abnormal for emergency departments. So I thought it was really important for us to cover this topic because it's a vulnerable population that a lot of times we don't think a lot about, but that we can make a huge impact on. So we've invited Dr. Lauren Fine, who I actually know from um, one of my SANE facilities. She's a fellow ER doctor and also the director of the SANE program. And I invited her on to come and talk about sexual assault patients and how to best handle them, specifically for strangulation. Following that, I wanted to highlight one of my favorite clinical articles from this month's ASAP Now on burr holes. So big episode for you guys. Thanks again for tuning in. And let's jump right in. Hey, everyone at ASAP Now, thank you again for joining us. And we wanted to bring back a couple articles that were previously in ASAP Now for this episode. And both those articles are on strangulation. Now, the reason we wanted to bring those back is because, sadly, this month is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I say sadly because it is a tragedy we see in our ERs more frequently than I think we would like. So to help discuss some of these topics, we brought on Dr. Lauren Fine, ER doctor and SANE director in Dallas, Texas, to help us discuss. So Lauren, thank you so much for making the time to chat with us. Let's just jump right in. As a director of a SANE program, you must see a lot of strangulation because domestic violence and strangulation or choking really go hand in hand. But how common are these? Like, is it something that is just obvious to us or something we have to probe for? And how do we do that? So I'm going to say that I think it is a lot more common than we typically think it is. Um, And I say this because within our system, as we've moved to start asking this more routinely to our patients, our case numbers have really grown exponentially. Um, I think this is just something a lot of people don't volunteer. Even after they're presenting for an assault by an intimate partner, they just kind of think it's another thing that happened, right? And they they may not think to mention it. And so I've really found that if you don't ask, a lot of patients are not going to tell you. I think that even our best epidemiologic data on strangulation probably underestimates the prevalence of this problem. 
I know that within the intimate partner violence community, if you look at um, all victims of IPV, about 50% of them have had a history of non-fatal strangulation. And we know we see a lot of IPV victims, right? And then if you're just looking at a really broad spectrum, like a literature-based answer, there's a systematic review on non-fatal strangulation in 2014 that looked at the whole population that found a lifetime risk of strangulation between three and almost 10% with a past year prevalence of 0.4 to 2.4. So I think this is really common. If you did nothing else asking all of your IPV patients or anyone you suspect, suspect is a victim of, of intimate partner violence, right? That's going to be your highest risk category. Yeah. And I think you bring up a couple things that are really important. Like basically like you don't know what you don't know. So you do have to ask. And, you know, in reviewing the literature, I'm always struck by, you know, they'll do a seven year review at multi centers and come up with, I think 142 cases is what was quoted in um, this June ASAP now article about strangulation and geography. So kind of given how not rare, but you know, how little we know in a way about this, especially like compared to like sepsis, stroke, et cetera, like walk me through some of the medical things. Like what are the historical physical exam findings to look out for? Like, does it matter if they were choked or punched in the neck or held with one hand or two hands? Like, how do you approach this kind of patient? Right. So I think the first question is really, how are you going to ask your patient about this? Right. Mm -hmm. You're going to say like, Hey, were you strangled? I mean, the problem is a lot of patients don't think about it that way. They might say, someone choked me, right? Um, and while mm-hmm. we as doctors think about choking as something stuck in the airway, patients would think someone putting their hand to your neck is choking. Um, so, you know, using their words and then asking it in a really general term, like saying, has anyone put pressure on your neck or your chest in a way that made you pass out or that made you have trouble breathing or speaking or hurt your neck, Right. That way you kind of take a lot of the guesswork out of this. And what you're really saying is, did someone apply significant pressure that caused you to have symptoms to your neck or chest? Um, And that's a really good way to ask. And then in terms of follow-up questions, if your patient says yes, I think you really have two broad categories of questions you need to ask. First, neurologic symptoms, right? Did they lose consciousness? Did they have a seizure? Did they lose control of their bowel or bladder? Um, any vision loss, any stroke-like symptoms, right? Those are definitely things you're going to want to ask about. And then the second category, I would just call neck symptoms. So anything localizing to the neck, do they have a change in their voice? Are they having trouble speaking? Are they having trouble swallowing, trouble breathing, right? So looking for symptoms that localize there that would make me want to image um, either their, their head or their neck or both. Um, so that's how I would, uh, approach those questions. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good, um, comment as well that it's really multi-system. So in a way, are any of those more important than the others in terms of kind of like red flags or is it just that we don't know? So we have to ask all of it. I think those are all pretty important questions to ask, you know, I think the ones that we're most afraid of are the neurologic ones, right? Like, especially the stroke symptoms as ER doctors caring about emergent things, right? That's the biggest stuff we're really, we want to not miss. Um, But you really don't want to also miss um, an airway injury, a hyoid bone fracture, a tracheal injury, right? So I, I think these are all things that we should be asking. Um, I don't think at this point we have any, 
um, validated clinical decision rules that says these are the exact questions you have to ask and if this, then that, right? That data is not there yet. So in the absence of that, I think you kind of have to ask broad questions. Yeah, and that makes sense. And, you know, there was this 2019 ASAP Now article about just how to evaluate strangulation. And it goes through a lot of that, but, you know, had the exact same comment you did of a lot of symptoms can happen. And it's such a small number that have, let's say, a dissection or something else that it's hard for them to ever get statistical significance, it seems like, on these studies. Yeah. And and so... I think that's a really helpful review um, in treating these patients from a medical perspective. And I I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, Um, but I wanted to make sure we pivot and talk about the patient experience of what can we do to really be sensitive to the patient and also not make them relive the trauma while also getting what we need. Like I will fully admit, like when I have to MSC sane patients, I basically am like, hey, you don't need to tell me the story. I just want to know. And I'll ask like three really targeted questions and then leave everything else to the same examiners. But I feel like given that I should be asking more, how do I do that delicately? Right. Um, so I think I, that actually this is something that we're all probably pretty good at, um, which is just trauma-informed care, Right. Um, yes, sometimes we're afraid of re-traumatizing the patient, but generally we know that the things to do to make patients feel comfortable. So I think your number one thing is just making sure you create a safe environment for the patient, right? Make sure that you are asking these questions when the partner or the family member is out of the room. Um, this is not something where you're going to get an honest answer, right? If there's other people in the room, you don't know necessarily you know, who the abuser is. So making sure you create a safe space for the patient and then basic body language stuff, you know, sitting down, talking to your patient at eye level, um, engaging with your patient, asking permission if you're going to touch them. Um, I really think this is sort of like basic emergency medicine stuff that everyone knows how to do. And, you know, I do think we get very nervous as ER doctors kind of broadening back out to the same population about re-traumatizing patients by asking too many questions. But I think what I hear most from my sane nurses is frustration that sometimes as doctors, we aren't asking enough um, and that sometimes we maybe aren't um, asking enough to truly medically clear them sometimes. you know. So maybe we didn't mm-hmm. ask about strangulation because we were nervous to ask too many questions and then they go to the SANE suite and then they get a whole history about strangulation and then they have to come back, right, to get their yeah. imaging. So um, I think if anything, you know, it's not that we need all of the details of exactly what happened, but we do need to make sure that we're asking about the things that could be life-threatening and strangulation is one of those things. Yeah, no, now let's explore that a little bit more. Like medically, what are the diagnoses that we're concerned about the most? Because I love starting from the differential. Then I go in the room and I'm like, hey, answer these questions so I can help figure out the rank order and what's concerning and not. But what should we enter the room with knowing our diagnoses that we should rule out or just be concerned about? Right. Um, so I think there's two big things medically. And the first um, is really just the diagnosis of intimate partner violence. And I say that mm-hmm. because... The literature suggests that when your partner strangles you, your risk of being killed by homicide goes up by 7.5 times. 
right? A quarter yeah. of women who are killed yeah. by their partners were strangled beforehand. So some might say that's not a medical diagnosis, but in my mind, you're telling me that I'm going to discharge my patient and they have a vastly increased risk of being killed at the hands of their partner. That's a diagnosis I want to make. So start there, right? Make the diagnosis. Notice that your patient has been strangled. Tell your patient, hey, this isn't just he hit me again. Strangulation is your partner proving power, showing they control you. And the next thing they're going to do is kill you. And patients don't know that. And a lot of ER doctors don't know that. And so just starting to understand that this is a really dangerous sign. This is the last stop before homicide. Make the diagnosis. Tell your patient they're in trouble. Get a social work consult. Educate your patient and help them with safety planning. Hopefully that's your social worker, right? But Mm -hmm. this is a really important thing. I think probably homicide by partners is a bigger killer than vascular dissection. So that's the second big thing, right? The other big thing we really, really worry about is vascular dissections. It's like the boogeyman of strangulation. It's like EM nightmares because it's rare, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's often occult, and it's potentially devastating. And you miss this in a young woman who was strangled by her partner, and you probably don't sleep for a week. And I think the good news here is that Vascular dissection is pretty darn uncommon, but the bad news is that we don't have a clinical decision rule that tells us exactly who we need who we need to image. Yeah, I mean, it kind of seems like if any concern, image. Like that's that's basically the conclusion I even got in the recent CTA for strangulation article in ASAP Now. And like that's so frustrating to me because I know it's the thing we're looking for but it's not necessarily the most frequent. And I feel like the disposition is kind of dodgy. Like, so if you see a patient in, let's say the first 24 hours, end up being concerned, have a negative CTA, are we okay to discharge? Like, do we observe (laughs) or or what do we do with that? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit um, to the vascular dissection thing um, Mm -hmm. because... I want to say and share that I actually spoke with Dr. Riviello, who is the author of um, one of those ASAP Now papers. And Mm -hmm. um, he was also involved in the recommendations that were put out by the Training Institute for Strangulation Prevention. And if you kind of Google guideline strangulation evaluation, this is this flow sheet that you find everywhere. And it says it's from the National Medical Committee of the Training Institute for Strangulation Prevention. And it sort of lists every sign and symptom and then lists all the different types of imaging might, one might do um, to work up, uh, you know, a possible dissection. And um, what I thought was helpful is when I talked to him the other day, he said that the Training Institute's actually coming out with a new recommendation and that will be um, publicized via a webinar on October 31st, which you will be able to sign up for on their website. Um, that link isn't live as of yesterday when I last checked, but that should be coming. And I, I'm hopeful that it's going to be a little bit more of a narrow um, recommendation. I think a lot of people think the, the, you know, the clear things that should mandate an, a CTA are the neurologic stuff, right? Deficits, um, mm-hmm. seizure, 
these sorts of things, loss of bowel or bladder. Um, I think we don't know as much with some of the other stuff like isolated petechiae. Do you have to get a CTA? Um, so while I don't think the recommendations that are going to come out are, are, they're not like based on a huge trial, it's just a further expert recommendation. I am looking forward to seeing those. Um, and then going back to what you were saying about what happens after the CTA. So, you know, I, I think that response is a little bit of a hedge, right? I think they're basically saying, (laughs) look, if you get a CTA and it's negative, but your patient has really concerning symptoms and you think it's a false negative, sure, you know, admit them and observe them. In reality, what is your risk that you're going to send someone home with a normal CTA and then they're going to come back with a delayed presentation or you miss something? I would say it's pretty low. It's not zero, but it's pretty low. And for reference, from what I can tell from my review of the literature, the prevalence of a dissection on a CTA for non-fatal strangulation is somewhere around 2%. And interestingly, that's going to be an overestimate. If you pull these studies and they go back through like the Zuberi paper you cited earlier, the 170-something cases, um, or I think it was 142 cases, um, Mm -hmm. they went back through their positives and they had had one false negative, but they had like three false positives, three or four false positives. So in most of these case series, when they go back through, about half of their positives are false positives. Um, So I think in general, this is pretty uncommon. Um, We probably, when we identify it, right, we're we're over-identifying in a way. Um, And... That, but that's not so bad because the treatment is really just to put them on aspirin. And it's not bad to over-observe these people who probably often don't have a safe environment to go back home to. Yeah, I know. It's like in pediatrics, like if there's a concern for abuse, you admit the kid. In adult world, that's not the case. So that is super reassuring that, you know, because we don't know, in a lot of ways, observation is an option versus, you know, negative CT with contrast on appendicitis, usually no surgeon's going to take him for, you know, observation, but this is an area where it's gray enough that you can. So I I think that's a really, really good review on strangulation and also just a general approach to domestic violence patients. And I mentioned this earlier, but you're a SANE director, so this is so much your avenue. But I want to recognize that, you know, most ER doctors are not at a facility that has SANE resources. So what are just some of the things you learned as a SANE director that you think can just help other ER doctors and other facilities? Sure. Well, I just want to make everyone understand that, um, you know, reassuringly, if a patient cooperates with law enforcement in these situations, Um, there is a pool of federal funding called Crime Victims Compensation that actually pays not only for their ED visit related to the trauma, but really for like ongoing medical expenses for some time related to that um, injury. Um, So that's really cool. And even if you don't cooperate and you don't report um, an assault to law enforcement, you can still have your index visit often covered um, by a similar government pot of money. Um, So that's really cool. 
And then the other thing I, I think has been something I've really learned a lot more about since um, getting involved in the SANE world, honestly, is um, how surprisingly ineffective Plan B can be and how much better Ella is. I don't know mm-hmm. if everyone has access to Ella as emergency contraception, but we are really lucky to stock it in our ED. And it is um, just much more effective. It is uh, more effective up to five days out than Plan B. And it is um, better for people who are higher weight, higher BMI, um, which can be an issue with Plan B. Um, And so especially as um, reproductive health care access is changing in the country, I think reaching for the best emergency contraception when you can would be my advice. Yeah, I think those are two amazing pearls because there's nothing worse than, you know, a victim going through this and then on top of it getting stuck with ER bills or getting a, a pregnancy as a result of it. So those are two extremely important takeaways I'm glad you brought up. One more plug um, that I wanted to share, Dr. Jody Weeders, who's a part of our system and is the same director at Temple, um, actually gave a strangulation talk at ASEP. And um, so for listeners who have uh, access to virtual ASEP, you can look up her excellent talk on strangulation. Oh, that's great. We will um, get all of these links put up in show notes that people can read more about this. And I think it's really important more than anything because it's such a vulnerable population that I think we're doing a really disservice to by not discussing their best medical care. So again, Lauren, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, sharing a lot of really important takeaways and, you know, um, hopefully raising more awareness uh, for this population. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. So this is Amy Ho, ASAP Now Assistant Editor, and I'm actually here reviewing one of the articles from this month's ASAP Now. Now, the article is Emergency Department Trephination, Burr Hole, for Epidural Hematoma. And the reason I wanted to talk about this one is because burr holes are something we almost never get to do. Now, I actually had the fortune, or perhaps misfortune, of doing a couple of these in residency. And to be honest, it was still really rare then. It was kind of the perfect storm of neurosurgery not being able to make it in despite being at a trauma center because of some Chicago winter storms. But rather than share that story, um, we had actually invited a guest on who had a really novel technique on burr holes that he implemented at his urban not rural emergency department for another perfect storm case. Sadly, he had a bout of laryngitis, so we will bring him back on a future episode to share the case. And in the meantime, I did want to highlight this ASAP Now article with Dr. Danielle Kowal and Dr. David Ross. So burr holes are, again, super rare for ED docs to do. So I think there's always the question of, we see chest pain all the time. We can handle chest pain, heart failure, sepsis, strokes, etc. But how do we keep up to snuff for procedures that we rarely see, but when you need it, you really, really need it? Now, in the instance of burr holes, YouTubing it in the middle of a herniating head bleed doesn't seem like a great idea. So what the authors cover here is a simulation model to help train burr holes. And it's a surprisingly accessible model. 
The model they created is a model brain, an ice pack where they actually sucked out the fluid and then injected it with simulation blood to help with the viscosity, some cling wrap, some tape, and some fiberglass casting material, which was simulating the skull so that you could feel the double, uh, we always call it double bubble, but it was the two pieces that you felt on the drill as you crossed through each table of the skull. All of this wrapped into simulation skin wrap. So what's really interesting about this model is, as you know, a lot of things in simulation land can be exceedingly expensive, but this is one that's actually very accessible, very cheap, and something that any small sim center, or honestly, any academic center or anyone with an Amazon account can actually put together with relatively little money. Now they tested this model on some medical students with great results, but I wanted to encourage everyone to check out the article for full steps on how to make your trainer. One of the things that I've really enjoyed at being faculty at a residency is that I still get to do all the same education and simulation modules as the residents. I just pop into their conference if I want to kind of keep up to snuff. Now, not every emergency department can do that. So I really encourage you guys to look for opportunities like this, where you can bring it back to your staff meeting or your department, especially at non-academic centers, to have a refresher on these high-impact, low-frequency procedures. Again, the article is Emergency Department Trephination, Burhole for Epidural Hematoma in this month's ASEP Now, and I encourage you all to check it out. So that is it for us this month. Thanks again for tuning in, and as always, huge thanks to Dr. Lauren Fine for joining us with some great pearls for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We'll be back next month with more features from the magazine, as well as podcast-only content. For the magazine, be sure to check out next month the feature on Asia Terry, who is the ASEP new president-elect. Learn a little bit about snake bites, and also learn a lot more about one of my least favorite chief complaints, dizziness, in particular in posterior strokes. So as always, we are emergency doctors trying to produce content for emergency doctors, and we are always wanting to improve and give you content that you want to hear. So we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us if you have an idea at ASEPNow, or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. But as always, thank you for joining us, and we will see you all next time.